Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Welcome to the Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Very good. And Alistair, um, look, we've got a lot of lovely stuff to get going on. And there's a lovely question from Richie Crichton on Congressman Santos from the United States, which I'd love to get on to. But the first question I'd like to hit you with is about global ownership of British football before we get on to gritty American politics. Two questions from Andrew. Is it naive to think we can prevent our most venerable football clubs from becoming vehicles for vampiric capitalists and dubious potentates? Are we forced to accept that the people's game could be chiseled away from us like our public utilities, a consequence of open markets? So will you tell us a little bit about what's going on in football? Well, well, I'm I'm imagining the question is driven, uh, and we had quite a few on this, but by the, the bid that is in, well, two bids that are in to buy Manchester United, one of the biggest football brands in the world. And, and who, who owned them before? Uh, so tell us a little bit about... Well, the Glazers, the, this American um, business family, the Glazers, who are, there's a slogan amongst Manchester United fans, love United, hate the Glazers. Oh dear, that's a bit unfortunate. And how long have they owned it for? They've owned it for years. Basically, they took the club over. There's a lot of sort of controversy about the, the means by which they did it, by basically buying the club with the club's own money, as it were. And since then, the fans have run a sort of never-ending campaign to try and get them out of the club, including at one point, there was a point in, the, in this story when the, the predominant colour on the terrace was yellow and green, which was the colour of the team that preceded Manchester United. <laughs> But, but, but sorry, just for those who don't understand. So Ferguson was around from 86 to 2013 or something, some incredible kind of period. Is that right? Alex Ferguson managing Manchester United? He was there for a long time. Yeah. yeah. And somewhere in the middle of that period, the Glazers came in and bought it. But yeah. actually, it was quite successful under them, right? I mean, it, it was a good period for the club. Yeah, but how much was that to do with what was already there and, and, and whether that is to do... I think that the, what the fans don't like about the club is they feel that it's been taken away from them. They don't feel the same relationship with the club that they had. The, they see the Glazers as kind of almost almost like absent landlords, that the, the investment hasn't been there. Now, I know that sounds ridiculous because of the sorts of money that they pay for players and that they salaries and so forth, but Manchester United have kind of fallen. Is the same true with Chelsea and Abramovich? I mean, is this just a general fact whenever you get bought by a foreign owner? Well, I'll tell you what's interesting. If you go through, I'll very, very quickly go through all of the clubs in the Premier League. Arsenal, American. Aston Villa, American. Bournemouth, America. Brentford, British, Matthew Benham, gambler. Brighton and Hove Albion, Tony Bloom, ditto. Chelsea, now American, was Russian. Crystal Palace, Steve Parrish is, is still a big factor there, but he only, he's only now got 10%. The rest are all American. 
Everton Egyptian, Fulham American, Leeds Italian and American, Leicester Thailand, Liverpool American, Manchester City Abu Dhabi, America and China. China's only 1%, mind you. Manchester United, the Glazers, Newcastle United, Saudi, Nottingham Forest, Greece, uh, Southampton, British and Switzerland, Tottenham, England, West Ham United, Wales, Welsh, David Sullivan and Czech, and Wolverhampton Wanderers, China. Whoa. So to answer the question, is the game being chiseled away from us like our public utilities? It's certainly become a massive global industry. And just quickly on that, because you you know a lot about Germany. My understanding is that traditionally in Germany, the clubs were owned by the fans. And is that not true even for huge clubs like Barcelona, that they're controlled by the fans? The fans in Barcelona do have a lot more say. They, for example, elect the president. Right. But the club ownership in Germany is driven by this thing called the 51% rule. So the fans do have a stake in the running of the club. And I'm a big fan of German football for lots of reasons, but one of them is that I think that has improved the quality of the clubs. I think it improves the relationship with the fans, and it's also helped to keep prices down as well. And it's also meant that they've concentrated much more on youth development, is that right, in Germany? Yeah, but I think, look, most of our clubs do do pretty, you know, they've got pretty good academies and, and all that stuff. But I just think what we're seeing now with, with football, so the two people are now going for Manchester United. First guy is Jim Ratcliffe, who is a billionaire, uh, he he already runs the team Ineos in cycling. He's, he, run, he owns Nice Football Club. And the other guy is Sheikh Yassim bin Hamad al-Tani, son of an ex-Qatari prime minister. And, of course, that's leading to – because, you know, I don't think the sort of money that you're going to be talking about in Dubai Manchester United is a lot of money. We're talking well into the billions. And, of course, the Qataris already own Paris Saint-Germain, Right. There's still this talk around the place, despite Gary Neville's brilliant protestations against it, of a European Super League. Right. That appears to be the direction of travel that a lot of the big clubs want to go in. Okay, tell us a little bit about that. The idea there is that you put Barcelona Madrid into a, a, a Super League with Manchester United. With Manchester United, Bayern Munich, Paris Saint-Germain, the Italian clubs, Juventus, I guess. And the other thing that really sort of upset a lot of football fans was the idea that a bit like the American, the NFL, it would be, you know, you'd be in and then you'd you'd be in the club. Basically, you'd buy your way in. Um, so anyway, it, I think it it does underline the, the, the sheer – I can remember way, way, way back when Rupert Murdoch tried to buy Manchester United or one of his companies tried to buy Manchester United. And of course, at the time, he was also the owner of, you know, the main TV company covering live Premier League football. And there was an obvious sort of, you know, potential conflict there. But do you know what? I think I'm right in saying that I don't think anybody has ever been stopped from owning a football club on the fit and proper person test. Where Andrew, the questioner, is onto something is this thing about, I think it's almost like the, the football and the business of football, like a lot of businesses, has kind of become too big to fail. And it's become such an important part of our culture, of our image abroad and so forth. Now, Tracy Crouch. Yep. Who was my colleague. Yep. Entered Parliament with me in 2010. Yep. Right. Well, I'm about to say something I don't say often. She's a Tory MP and I really like her. Good. She's she's great, isn't she? And she yep. she did this review, the fan-led football review. And Gary Neville, who knows yep. his stuff, certainly knows a lot more about football than I do. And he said he thought it was a really, really good piece of work. And one of the things that was being proposed is this idea of a football regulator. 
Right. Now, Johnson sort of, I can't remember what he did with it, nothing. Trust it wasn't there long enough. And I don't know at this stage whether Rishi Sunak is taking an interest. But I think that there's a, I think there is a sense amongst a lot of football fans that football is becoming very, very distant from them. And, and part of that is ticket price, isn't it? I mean, so why didn't you as Labour, or why don't you in a future Labour government bring in a rule like this German 50 plus one rule where the commercial people can't own more than 49% and the fans and the clubs keep control and keep the ticket prices down, keep the attendance up. You could do that. You could do that. I think you'd face a hell of a lot of opposition from within the industry. Uh, but I think you'd have a lot of support from that within the, the football, the broader football community. We didn't do it because I think, it, I don't think that, I don't think we were there. I think it was the, it was the start of this process. I mean, I'm, I, I do remember when Abramovich bought Chelsea. I remember the, the headline, you know, the obvious one, Chelsky, uh, that was sort of all over the papers. Um, but it was such a big thing. But now it's kind of commonplace when I went through that list. And by the way, when you go down into the championship and below, you'll see an awful lot of non-British owners there as well, including at Burnley. We've got American owners now. And that's because British football is such a big global industry. Okay. Very good. Well, Alistair, I'm very grateful we got you on that because it is something you know an enormous amount about that I know nothing about. And, well, and, believe um, me, there will still be lots of people coming on saying, God, he was talking absolute rubbish. And what he should have said was this. <laughs> it's one of those subjects that does tend to provoke. Thank goodness I get to talk about the highlands of central Afghanistan where I have fewer people coming. No, actually, well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a Go tough on. one. If you're going to give me a tough one, I'm going to give you Go a on. tough one. Nick Simpson, why do you guys believe that the latest front on the conspiracy culture wars is the 15-minute city idea of having shops and services near your home. It seems odd that this is what's been targeted. Is this just random chance, or are there forces that are threatened by this concept? Well, it's amazing, isn't it? So 15-minute city was something I was trying to run on when I was running to be an independent, to be mayor of London. Something that Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, has done a great job on. The idea of the 15-minute city is that everything should be within 15 minutes walk or at most cycle ride from where you are. And it's a lovely idea. I think of new urbanism, mixed use, and it's something we badly need in London. I mean, I I remember meeting Afghan friends up in North London and, you know, I thought we'll go and have a cup of tea, which would be a normal thing to do in Afghanistan. And we had to walk 25 minutes to a Sainsbury's to get a cup of tea. And I realized that there was a complete absence of the sort of dense community structures and life, which make life worth living in a city in many, many parts of London. So anyway, in Oxford, they're trying to push it ahead. They're also trying to put restrictions on people driving their cars into central Oxford. And people have decided in a massive sort of global outcry against this, including this slightly creepy figure, Jordan Peterson, who's this right-wing Canadian Mm. social media advocate, that this is an attempt to lock people in their homes as part of a world government's attempt, which began with COVID to try to take control of our lives and stop us visiting our mums. Yeah, it's the World Economic Forum. Um, they, they've come up with this dastardly plan. I mean, how do, it, it does seem to me incredible these, these, how these conspiracy theories develop and, and the things that get targeted. Farage was at it. There was a Tory MP in the Commons the other day talking about it. Nick Fletcher. About- Richard Sterling's asked about this thing, international socialist conspiracy. So it's very interesting. So restrictions on cars in Europe are increasingly being seen as socialist. Now, that, that's, again, I think part of us endlessly just sort of picking up from the United States where there's a sort of strong association of liberals being the people who are stopping you getting in your car and Republicans wanting to have some Mm. big gas guzzler. No, it's extraordinary. And the only thing that I suppose you might say, which people pointed out to me in London, which is true, is that sometimes the restrictions on car use 
so restrictions on car use in outer London can have a disproportionate impact on people on low incomes with older cars that have to pay more because their cars don't qualify for exemptions mm. and they need their cars to get to work and that it is easier for people living in sort of zone two in London to, to be high, high and mighty about not using yeah, cars. But as I understand it from the Oxford thing, where some of these councillors and officials are getting all sorts of abuse and people from around the world sort of getting on at them and saying you're part of, you know, some terrible globalist international plot. We were talking on the main podcast about biodiversity and about the climate crisis you know, for councils to try to do something to get more people to walk and cycle is not a bad thing. And to slow down in cities as you don't knock as many kids over. Above all for air pollution. So we're still in a world in which at least 26,000, but maybe 50,000 people a year in Britain are dying prematurely because of air pollution, mm. with a lot of that coming out of the tail end of vehicles. So stopping people doing it is good, particularly for our children, for the elderly, but conspiracy theories, I mean, I don't know whether you've been on the receiving end of them. My big one, I, I went to, I was invited to the Bilderberg Conference. And as oh, soon yeah. as this came out, there was questions <laughs> in the House of Commons where, you know, Ken Clark had to defend at the dispatch box Rory Stewart's attendance at the Bilderberg Conference. And some of my constituents who are more on the kind of BNP UKIP end started saying that this meant that I was a, a lizard king. And I couldn't quite work out whether I'd sort of been a lizard before I was invited to the Bilderberg Conference or whether I'd sort of grown a tail after my attendance. I think you have to be a lizard to qualify. To qualify in the first place. Do you, mm. do you ever get hit by conspiracy theories? Um, I don't know. It's conspiracy. I don't think so. Oh, oh, Probably. No, sort of quickly. Sorry, I've realized people don't know what the conference is. So the conference, <laughs> conference is a, a conference which has been going for a number of years. A small conference invites a lot of fancy people, politicians, business leaders, and has the kind of earnest conversations you have in every conference around the world. I mean, mm. you talk about the state of the world, you scratch your head about China, you talk about Taiwan, and you get some gloomy economist talking about inflation. What do you think it says about people's relationship with the world, though, that they, so many people seem to want these, they want to own these conspiracy theories? I suppose the one I get a little bit is from the, the Corbynista left, sometimes accuse me of having deliberately tried to help the Tories win an election. Is that a conspiracy theory or is that just a sort of insult? I don't know. Ah, okay, here we are. I'm going to get some quicker questions going. Here's a question for you. Live tweets from the underground. What do you make of Keir Sama banning Corbyn from standing as a Labour MP and telling people who supported him to leave the party? That's what Boris Johnson did to me. It is, and I, I think it's what Rishi Sunak should do to Boris Johnson. <laughs> Look, Keir Starmer did a speech last week where he set out how far he thought the Labour Party had changed since Jeremy Corbyn the whole kind of story of anti-Semitism, the Labour Party is now being sort of given a pretty clean bill of health because of the changes that have been made. Um, and I think the sense is that Jeremy Corbyn still doesn't really get it on that front. I've actually just been reading David Baddiel's book, Jews Don't Count, which is, as you'd expect from David Baddiel, very funny in parts, but it's also incredibly serious. And it does make you think about this sort of, he talks about this hierarchy of racism and that, anti-Semitism is, is almost like sort of the, the racism that progressives don't think is as bad as the others. And so I think Keir's basically saying, look, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, whatever his strengths, whatever, you know, good he's done for the, in the past, that, you know, he, he, the way he handled that and the way that he allowed the anti-Semitism 
crisis to develop within the party means that he shouldn't stand as a candidate. Well, there we are. Okay. I mean, I'm obviously depressed about it because I don't like being chucked out myself. And I think these things should be big, big um, tents and they shouldn't. I think it's a a mistake in British politics to make these groups too narrow. And I think Mm. it's particularly brutal to do it to someone who's been that senior. And that's like kicking out Mm. Ken Clark. So why don't we take a quick break and then come back and do rattle through some questions after the break, Alison. Okay. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Rest is Politics. Um, one thing quickly, just to thank all of you who've signed up to the Rest is Politics newsletter. I hope you're enjoying it. And a big thank you to the Trip Plus members who've been making use of the 10% discount they get at Cole's Books on the titles which Alistair and I are mentioning while supporting independent businesses over multinational booksellers. Um, so please do sign up to our free mailing list and newsletter. Just click on the link in the episode description. Have a look on our Twitter, Instagram, or email restispolitics at gmail.com, and we'll sign you up from there. Free mailing list. Right, Alistair, questions. Right. Now, we weren't getting through quickly enough, so right. let's try this yeah. one. Uh, what, Tyler, can Alistair admit to any upsides of being out of the EU? Uh, I'm struggling on that one. So that was very, very quick. Dealt with, <laughs> done. Uh, here's one for you. MPs' expenses, Matthew Wilcox. Yeah. Ex- MPs' expenses often written about as if comparable to normal expenses that an office employee might submit. 
Is this a false equivalence? Can you explain why thousands of expenses might actually be legitimate and valued? Yes, let me explain that. So there's something actually pretty outrageous there. You often see, and I found this as an MP, so-and-so spent £160,000 on their expenses. When you look through those items, you'll discover that that, almost all of that will be the cost of their constituency office. So those will be the people who are working very hard and are processing, in case of my constituency office and other people are busy, I think we got something like 25,000 emails and letters a year, all of which needed to be replied to, constituency events organized. It's a serious business. And actually, MPs have much, much smaller staffs than their US equivalents would have. So these aren't, as you might imagine, people sort of buying champagne on the company. These are people using the money to run the basic operations of their life. And it's also true that MPs who are in northern constituencies, you know, people who are up in Scotland coming down to London, need to spend the night in London. And it's very weird for the public to say this is outrageous. Now, there were definitely abuses in the past, definite, definite abuse in the past, and there may still be MPs fiddling their expenses now. But the vast majority of MPs are very, very careful. And a lot of the stuff is just Twitter bait. Mm. Nicola Bully case. This is a question from Felix Trimbos. And we had quite a few about this. I wondered if you might briefly discuss the standards of reporting around the disappearance of Nicola Bully and his subsequent discovery by Walkers. The family particularly criticised press intrusion. However, I noticed that the Mail Online omitted those sentences from the statement when they published the statement in full, in quotes, and focused their coverage on alleged failings by the police. Do you think the media have whipped up criticism of the police to draw attention away from the way they have stoked the unwelcome social media speculation, or will news organisations always be criticised for their handling of this sort of story? And of course, we should also add that two of the TV, two of the broadcasters, ITV and Sky, were also named as having been overly in- intrusive. So um, tell us a bit about this, because well, firstly, tell us a bit about Nicola Bully, and then you you were a journalist, right? So you were right in the heart of the, the bad old days, the 1980s, when people were accused of a lot of this, weren't they? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the, it was sort of pre, that era was pre-mobile phones and all the hacking and all that sort of stuff. But certainly, the, I think there was a lot of journalism through time has often pushed right at the edges. But I think when you've been through the whole thing of the Leveson inquiry, Millie Dowler's death, and the, which is what led to the Leveson inquiry ultimately, and the press constantly saying that, you know, they will get their own house in order. But there does seem to be, in this case, uh, two things coming together. So, Nicola Bully goes missing. It becomes a sort of major media story. And the press, according to the family and according to the police who've been speaking on their behalf, overstepped the mark repeatedly, both in terms of misrepresenting people, in terms of intrusions on their privacy and, and now on their grief and so forth. And so, you know, there was an interesting debate on the radio this morning where people were talking about whether the press will ever um, agree to any kind of genuine regulation. Ipso uh, is the latest manifestation of the Press Complaints Commission. They've always been, in my view, bodies of the press, for the press, by the press. And I think that's what we have. And But I think it's typical that newspapers would take out – so they're, they're happy to say ITV and Sky have been criticised. They're happy to say that the police have been criticised. <laughs> criticism of themselves just sort of finds its way nicely to the spike. Very good. Okay, now World Bank president replacement. The dog father. I like that name, the dog father. Who'd be the best place to replace the head of the World Bank, David Malpass? 
Oh, it's got to be the dog father. It's got to be the dog father himself. Very good. Can't, can the dog father not do it? The dog father is. What about what about Gordon? What about Gordon? Could be Gordon. Could be Gordon. Yeah. That's very good. I'm afraid it's going to be an American. Could be Larry Summers. Larry Summers putting. Oh, himself it does have the to. Job. Does it have to be an American? The, the, the well, Americans... no, but, but it's an American appointment. It would be very odd yeah, exactly. for them not to appoint an American. They never done. Yeah. Never not had an American. The Americans like Gordon. They like Gordon. Now here's yeah. one, Rory. Brian Keating. Yeah. Please, he says. Please, can you discuss the new voter ID rules? And I think we should, because I'm very worried about these. I, th- I think that this... Well, you, you've, you've done a bit of it, haven't you? So just, just I'll do a little explainer and then you'll give your yeah. comments. So the government's introducing new voter ID rules, and there's not much evidence, really, of voter fraud at all in Britain. I'm oh, sorry, not, not evidence of that kind of fraud, of people turning no. up and voting when they're not supposed to vote. There's been other types of voter fraud. In fact, there's been a terrible case with an ex-Labour mayor in Tower Hamlets who got up to all kinds of horrible business during elections. But not that kind of voter fraud. The government's now pushing for much, much tighter ID. And the criticism of it is that this is ID that older people tend to have. And unless you're a younger person with a driving license or a passport, it's going to become more difficult for you to vote. So I think you want us to see this as a kind of suppression of younger voters. Well, I think it could be because, uh, look, this is, this is a, a new law that's being brought in without a problem to address. I mean, the, the problem, as you say, is, is, is next to non-existent. And now you've got the electoral administrators saying that they're really worried that they will not be able to bring this in time for the May 2023 elections, um, which is when it's due to begin. Well, that's, we're, t- we're talking a few weeks' time. And most people don't know this is happening. Most people will just turn up as they normally have. I'm doubtless the government will pay for a few adverts to go on the television, but, you know, in the end, so what? I just, I can't see the reason why they're doing this, why they're devoting so much parliamentary time to it, so much political capital being used on it, unless it's sort of to get the right people to vote and the wrong people not to vote. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Or some strange culture war that I can't quite get my head around. Um, Thoughts on national service. Um, So this relates to the interview with David Lammy. John Arthur asks, what are your opinions on national service or a progressive national service? Focus on neglected jobs such as fruit picking, social care, rewilding, rather than military. I was very much in favour of this. When I was running to be leader of the Conservative Party, I tried to push for a citizen's national service. The idea was very, very much not a military type of service, but to go for a commitment people doing form a social service. Mm. What, What do you think about it? No, I'd be in favour of that. I think military service less so, although I do think, by the way, we're going to have to, there's going to have to be a major sort of strategic review right across the NATO countries, given what's going on in in Ukraine. But I wouldn't be in favour of military service. But I, I also think there's a very interesting paradox, which I came across when I was doing the research for this book I've written, which is that young people in general are very, very socially conscious, okay? And yet, they are less civically engaged than when you and I were growing up. And that's, you know, research that shows that fewer than a third of people now aged aged 18 to 24 say that they would be willing to work together with others on something to improve my neighborhood. And that is well, well, well down on the, on the, the, the same question. It's almost halved. Well, the, there's also the, this terrifying statistic, I think you, you will have seen, that a very large number of young people um, say that a good military government would be better than the current yeah. democracy in Britain. Yeah, yeah. So maybe, maybe they, want, they want the military kind of national service and we want the, <laughs> the volunteering and doing good things kind of national oh, service. Um, Congressman Santos, Richie Crichton, 
Would you like to discuss the current situation with George Santos in the US? Any comparison to politicians telling fibs about their backgrounds in the UK? So, I mean, people who haven't been following this, which I guess many, many people will have done, but it is the most staggering story. Congressman Santos is a Republican congressman who claimed to work for Goldman Sachs, didn't, <laughs> um, claimed to be Jewish and descended from Holocaust survivors, wasn't, claimed to go on to an elite college, which he didn't do, claimed to run a charity, which didn't exist, claimed to know victims of a nightclub shooting, <laughs> which he didn't. <laughs> His mother, he claims, died twice, once in 9-11, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, <laughs> I, um, and yet somehow the Republicans are still gathering around him. Uh, although there was a great standoff with Mitch Romney, um, yeah, trying to get him to move to the back. Um, any thoughts on Santos? Any thoughts on US uh, UK equivalents? Um, well, look, I know it's of a different order when you go through them like that, but I think if you were to look at the life story and the life and times of Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson. There's a guy who doesn't mind telling big fat lies, and he thinks he can be prime minister again. That's that's true. Different type of lie, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, do you know the one that I've spotted a lot in recent years in politics is this this thing about people exaggerating their their academic qualifications and and plagiarising theses. Quite a lot of politicians seem to get done on and Germans particularly. It's a big deal in Germany, isn't it? I think there've been three or four German politicians who've gone and that AI way. AI is going to obviously make that even more prevalent. Look, George Santos is a ridiculous character. Um, he's truly ridiculous, and, and there's been some wonderful protests in, in his um, in his district of people basically saying, "Look, you know, you're just so embarrassing. You've got to, <laughs> I, you cannot be our representative." But he just sort of he just smiles benignly and carries on and goes and makes up more stories. But I guess it's a logical extension of Trump's alternative facts, isn't it? Invent your own story, make your own story. It's just so extraordinary. I love the mother died twice, once in nine eleven. Poor mum. How does she feel? About it? <laughs> now, here's one for you, Rory. George Capel. What do Rory and Alistair think about the treatment of the BBC in India after the documentary on Modi? Have they seen the documentary? No, not in my case. What do they think about religious division and Hindu nationalism in India, India more generally? How should the UK respond to this? And this is, I don't know if you've seen this, but the, the BBC headquarters were raided. Yeah, on trumped up tax charges. Yeah. Mm, which mm. relates, I mean, we were talking about Modi and populism. I mean, it's a very, very difficult issue. Um, it is definitely a populist government. Modi has been associated with anti-Muslim rhetoric since these horrifying riots when he was running Gujarat. We talked about that too. Um, there are Hindu nationalist militia who do these very, very sinister proto-fascist parades in the street. And it's something that I think we need to call out much more. Mm. Uh, but it's also something which is very tense in British politics. I mean, Modi, when he comes over to Europe, does these huge rallies, France, Britain, where enormous numbers of people turn up. Many friends of mine who are Indians are cautious about my openly criticizing and calling out Modi for what he does. And I think it's horrifying. And I think the BBC documentary was careful and justified. And this is very unfair. I did, did. I didn't see if anybody from the government spoke up for the BBC. I didn't. I didn't notice if they did or they didn't. No, um, I didn't see that either. I think the fact that neither of us noticed it suggested they maybe not being as well. They, I think that there is a real issue around this because um, there's a big competition amongst both political parties of courting British Asian votes, and much of the British Asian community remains very committed towards Modi. And I think that may be why we haven't heard much criticism. Hmm. And you've got the government still hopeful of trying to get some sort of trade deal at some point. Now, here's one, Rory. Yep. 
very personal yeah. to all of us, but I think it's a very nice question. James Counter, how have you learned to deal with the loss of someone close to you? I know this is mental health, not politics question, but you bridge that gap occasionally. Okay, I'll start first and then I'll hand over to you. So my, my father died, who I was very, very close to. He died at the age of 92. I was with him when he died. And actually, I tried to resuscitate him and, and didn't didn't succeed. Um, so I was with him when he was alive and I was with him for his last words and then with him as, as he died. Um, I, I don't know whether there's a, any strong answer to that. I mean, I felt with my father that I was very, very lucky that I had a very good relationship with him and that we'd spent a lot of time together talking. And therefore, in a way, I didn't feel so much that there was anything that we were we were missing that, that had mm. been undone. Um, but but Alistair, over, over to you, it's something you thought about much more than me. Well, I'm a great believer in crying. I think actually letting it all out when you feel like letting it out, and sometimes in the strangest of circumstances. My sister was telling me the other day that we both, we'd lost both of our brothers, and um, she bumped into the, the doctor that was looking after one of our brothers when he, was, when he was ill, and she just bumped into him outside a cafe, and she just saw him and just burst into tears and it was obviously that's a form of grief and I'm a great believer in that I think if you feel like crying you should cry I think the second thing I would say is I honestly Rory I think listening to music when you're feeling sad is a is a great thing to do even if again that makes you you cry I think writing is very good for grief I think sometimes writing letters to the person that you miss uh, is a good thing to do even though you know it's not going to go anywhere and I think the other thing, when my when my mum died, she, and as you know, I was in Jordan where you live when she died and while well, she was dead by the time I got back. And we found in, in her papers this poem that she wanted us to read at the funeral. And I now send this to anybody I hear of, in, in, including this week. I had an extraordinary situation this year. I think I told you before about a musician called Stacey Kent who I came across about a year ago in France. I just heard her in the background in a restaurant and I tweeted about this incredible voice I've just come across. And we've since become quite friendly and I'm going to see her in uh, when she's in Ronnie Scott's in April. And anyway, I sent her a message randomly about next to nothing um, when I was in Switzerland. Oh, that's right. I'd heard her music in a lift in a hotel. I said, you won't believe what I've just heard in a lift. And she sent me a version which she has just recorded of Numa Kitapa by Jack Brell, who is my favorite musician of all time. And she said, it was nice to get your message out of the blue. I've been thinking a lot about parent and child relationships, father-daughter in particular. And I know you've got a very good relationship with your daughter, Grace. And because my dad's died recently, very, very suddenly. And this is the last song that I ever sent to him. And it was Numakitapa. It's her version of it. It's out on a new album later this year. It is the most, honestly, it's almost as good as Jack Brell. And Stacey will know for me to say that it's quite a thing. But anyway, so I sent her the, I sent her this poem that my mum had left for us. And I, I'm, I can recite it to you now. It's very, very short. It just said, farewell, my family. My life is past. I loved you all to the very last. Weep not for me, but courage take love each other for my sake. For those you love, don't go away. They walk beside you every day. And I, whenever I feel sort of, I, I, I feel that quite often. I, I feel my people I've missed, not just my parents and my brothers, but other people that I've lost. 
if I'm in a political situation, I will sometimes, I literally will talk to Philip Gould and I will go for a walk and I will talk to him. <laughs> so I think these are all ways of dealing with uh, with grief because I don't think grief is a thing that just goes within days or weeks. I think it stays with you. Oh, thank you. Well, to cheer us up on a slightly, on a different different note, but I thought that was wonderful, Alistair. Um, Catherine Adams, always have good book recommendations. I'm off to Israel soon. So, and Alistair, book recommendations on Palestine. Right. If I were to recommend one book going to Israel, I'd say My Promised Land by Avi Sharit. Very good. Okay. I'm going to go with Raja Shahade's Palestinian Walks mm-hmm. and also encourage somebody going to that region to think beyond just the current situation of Israel-Palestine into the older history. So there's an amazing book by Peter Brown called The Body and Society, which is about sexual renunciation and early Christianity a lot in that region of the world. Maybe read a bit about the Ottomans. If you want a fun Ottoman book, there's a great murder mystery by Orhan Panuk with a 16th century detective, um, which gets you into the world of the Ottoman Empire. And of course, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire. And then I'd maybe encourage you to read writers who aren't necessarily writing about Israel-Palestine, but are writers based in Israel and Palestine. So, you know, obviously on the Palestinian side, you may want to read Edward Said's Orientalism. But on the Israeli side, you know, we've talked a lot about Yuval Noah Harari, who lives in Israel, um, teaches at the university there. And his books are definitely worth reading, Homodeus, etc., very good, very good. I am currently reading um, the proofs of a book by Sadiq Khan called Breathe, Tackling the Climate Emergency. And that's actually, for a political politician book, it's actually rather well written and, and interesting. He's sort of taken his own experience of developing um, asthma as an adult into what he's now trying to do to change politics and policies on the climate and you talked about your dad there Rory yep the other book I'm reading I'm going to hold it up for you you can see it even if the if the listeners can't yeah this is the French translation of a book a copy of which I have got for you oh my goodness because it's called Hanoi after the war Uh uh-huh and it's a book of pictures by a guy called John Ramsden who is one of our neighbors out in France and John Ramsden followed in your father's footsteps in Vietnam. Oh. And he was he was deputy head of mission, probably about 20 years after your dad. And when we posted the obituary to your dad, when you talked about him in a previous episode, he said that it brought back so many memories of his time doing the same job oh. in Vietnam, basically going and telling the Americans that this wasn't going very well and they needed <laughs> to think about a new strategy. <laughs> So he's given. He's 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 got one for me and one for you. Good. Oh, and well, um, that's lovely. Fabulous pictures. And I want to finish with a thanks to you because myself, Shoshana, my wife, and my mother, who you know, Sally, have been watching Only Murders in the Building, the Steve Martin comedy that you recommended. <laughs> what do you think? I think it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. They're much better podcasters than us. We should start recording in closets. I like the fact that Steve Martin's made to record in a really hot closet. Do you think? Do you think they are better podcasters than us? They probably spend. I think they spend more time talking to each other about their podcasts than us. That's for sure. Like seven days a week. It is quite funny, though, isn't it? That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. All right. Thank you, Alistair. All the best. Bye bye. <laughs> 